Go ahead and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. This morning, we're continuing our brief study through this letter of 1 John. We'll be in verses 18 to 27 today. It's a larger chunk of uh, verses that we will be spending our time together, uh, uh, spending our time on together this morning. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. If you're new to reading the Bible, 1 John is found towards the end of the New Testament. Uh, the Bible is broken up into two testaments. There's the Old Testament and then the New. The New is towards the end. 1 John is one of the last letters there at the end of the New Testament. The larger numbers, when you flip to uh, 1 John chapter 2, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. The smaller numbers kind of peppered throughout the, the words are the verse numbers. Uh, you can also turn to page 1211 in the Black Pew Bibles there in front of you. If you don't have a Bible that you can comfortably read uh, in a translation that you can understand, uh, consider that Black Pew Bible our gift to you. Uh, the Word of God is a gift to the church. Uh, let this be a gift to you if you don't have a Bible that you can read. Uh, you can also follow along as I read on the screens. But friends, before we jump into the scriptures, when the light blinks and the beeping goes off, I know it is the last hour. But I have seven minutes before the next set rings. And then I have a third alarm that will ring, warning me, telling me, this is the last time that you can turn this off. But then I have a fourth. So though I should be waking up at 4 a.m. so that I can get to my car and get to work on time, I flirt with danger through the snooze button. Friends, many of us know what it feels like to be uh, engaging with the last minute. You know, the paper is due at the last minute. I've got to cram for this test at the last minute. I've got to clean up the house before everybody comes at the last minute. I've got to get ready for work at the last minute. I should have ironed my shirt last night when I could have, but I just really wanted to watch one more episode and just relax a little bit. But when the last minute comes, what do you feel? Maybe a sense of anxiety? maybe a sense of dread, maybe a sense of, well, I just wish I had a better job anyway. Why am I going to this, work, uh, to this job right now that I don't want to be at anyway? But friends, we as the church are living in a last minute of sorts. The Apostle John will say that in our passage this morning. We are living in the last hour. I want to give you the main idea before we jump into the text but the main idea is actually just one verse from the text that we're going to read here in just a moment. But as we continue to study through this letter that the apostle wrote to the church, the main idea of this letter really as a whole, in one sense, the main idea of this passage we'll be reflecting upon, and the main idea of our sermon today is simply let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So if you're there at 1 John chapter 2, We'll start with verse 18. The apostle writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. 
I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Friends, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. This is the main idea of this uh, longer passage of scripture this morning. Two observations from our text today. First, we're given a warning concerning Antichrist. And then second, we're given a call to abide. A warning concerning Antichrist in verses 18 to 23, and then a call to abide in verses 24 to 27. Now, I have used a word that may trigger for some of you great fear and anxiety. The A word, antichrist. For some of us, when we think of this term, when we hear this word, we immediately think of a great villain that will stand at the end of time leading a whole horde of uh, opposers of the church equally against Jesus who is leading the forces of the light. Right? Kind of like an Aragorn versus Sauron kind of picture. But friends, the apostle is going to give us a clear warning about what we are to understand Antichrist is. But let's start with his first few words here in verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. By referring to these Christians, this is not the first time he's done this, the apostle once again demonstrates his paternal and pastoral care and concern for his fellow believers. He refers to the church as children. He says, my little children, in earlier verses. He looks at them not in a condescending tone. He doesn't look at the church as, these are a bunch of dummies who just don't know what they have. He demonstrates a fatherly care and concern for his children. He loves the church. That's the first thing we need to understand about the Apostle John in this letter, is he is not just another leader who comes in wanting to shore up power of his own and exercise his authority so that the church would see how great he is. We got plenty of those types of guys. That's not what the church needs. What the church needs are men like the Apostle John, who loves the bride of Christ, who will demonstrate care and concern and a willingness to lay his life down for the little children. And that's exactly what we have in the Apostle John. The Apostle John loves the church. And by writing this letter, we are cared for as children of God through his instructions. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. 
So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. All throughout these first two chapters of uh, the first letter of John, the apostle John wants the church to know. He wants them to know that the proclamation of the gospel that they have received from him is true. He wants them to know that anybody who proclaims faith in Christ and walks in the light truly has fellowship with God. He wants them to know without any doubt that they indeed can have confidence for eternal life. And here in this verse, he wants them to know this is indeed the last hour. He goes on to explain exactly why we should understand that this is the last hour. He says, uh, basically, the increased numbers of these false teachers indicates this is it. We're getting close, right? So all throughout the New Testament, uh, you can see in Acts chapter 2, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, one of the most poignant verses in uh, that letter and in all of Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Hebrews 9, verse 26, the New Testament repeatedly helps us to understand that the last hour or the last days is the entire period of time between the first and the second comings of Jesus. It's the, it's the entire period of time between the first and the second comings of Jesus. Jesus. But oftentimes we hear the idea of the last hour and the last phrase and we have this like apocalyptic vision in our minds, right? Like this is it, sky's about to crack and the mountains are going to rumble and the fires are going to come out and Jesus is going to come through and he's going to shoot lightning bolts at all his enemies and it's all going to be done. But that is not how the Apostle John describes and leads the church to understand what this last hour is. He says, this is the last hour. We are living in this last period before the coming of our Savior. And he goes on to say emphatically in verse 18 that we may know this is the last hour. How? He does not point to the current social situations. He does not point to the political workings of the political systems of the first century. He doesn't point to the Roman newspaper. He points to the fact that the existence and the activity of these very many false teachers indicates with no doubt that this is indeed the last hour. So what does this this word antichrist even mean? Straightforwardly, the term antichrist is a combination of two Greek words. The word anti, meaning against or instead of, and the word Christos, meaning Messiah, or Christ, the anointed one. And what's interesting is this term, Antichrist, it is only referred to and used in John's letters. It is not used in other areas and other passages of Scripture other than John's works. It is not used to refer to the beast in Revelation 13. You can find a a, a whole host of uh, passages where John refers to this term antichrist, but the idea is the antichrist stands against the true Christ. One commentator said that the scriptures teach that the antichrist opposes Christ as his adversary or enemy with a view to looking to take his place. He is a lying pretender who portrays himself as Christ but is instead a counterfeit 
a diabolical parody of Christ himself. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, he said in verse 5, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. He goes on to say in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 3 to 12, he refers to a man of lawlessness. Uh, specifically in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7, he says that the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. John will go on in uh, 1 John chapter 4 verse 3 to point out that the spirit of Antichrist is now at work in the world. You know, last week I quoted a Christian artist who said, it ain't safe. Friends, this is something that John wants us to understand. We are living in the last hour. We are living with dangers assaulting the church, and it is not safe. But when the church would hear of this Antichrist to come, they understood that this, this person, this false Christ, this, this diabolical parody was yet to come into the future. He had not come yet. Right? John says, even now, many antichrists have already come. So what's interesting is he is not pointing to this final adversary that is to come later in the future. He's pointing to many adversaries. Antichrists, it's plural. So what John means in chapter 2, verse 18, is that these many antichrists, these false Christs, these deceivers, these liars, these false teachers, they are forerunners of the one that the church heard was still to come. There was one who would still come, who would be a great threat against the church. And these false teachers are but shadows and pictures of one who is yet to come. Now, The Apostle John is absolutely right to call these false teachers antichrists. Why? Because as we'll see in verse 22, they deny the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Now friends, let me give you a pastoral encouragement and exhortation. Do not shape your understanding of the end times, the the end that is to come, the world that is to come, Eschatology, don't shape your eschatology based on the news, based on what is currently the hot cultural war to pick a fight on. Do not look to Christian fiction to base your end time views on. Look to, with humility and great trust in Jesus, the scriptures. Look to Jesus and trust that no matter what is to come in the end, he is victorious. Look to Jesus because he is the promised Christ. You need not fear he who is to come, the man of lawlessness, the the great enemy. You do not need to fear him to come because your king is already victorious. Now, in verse 22, chapter 2, verse 22, John goes on to write, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So the Apostle John 
has a broader understanding of Antichrist than maybe even some of us do. For, for some of us, we may look at Antichrist just very narrowly as this one particular figure. But in this letter, when John uses the term, he's got a broader understanding. Because in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, for John, Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He goes on in verse 23, Antichrist is anyone who denies the Father and the Son. When he references Antichrist again in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, for him, it is every spirit that does not confess Jesus. He goes on in 2 John, verse 7. What is Antichrist? Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So in John's letters, he seems to have this focus on these false teachers who were claiming that Jesus was just a man. He's just flesh and bones. And it was the spirit of Christ that entered him and then departed upon his crucifixion. For John... Anyone who denies that Jesus is truly God, truly man, truly the anointed, prophesied Messiah, the Christ, anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist. He doesn't parse words. He doesn't mince words. He's not saying, go ahead and flirt with that false teacher. He says, you see that false teacher? That is the Antichrist. You need to be careful. You need to not flirt with this. You need to be careful of the teaching that you are allowing in. Anyone who denies Jesus is the Christ, according to the apostolic teaching of the Apostle John, is the Antichrist. So, popular preachers on television who want to call out the fact that if you just drop a seed of faith and you will bless their ministry and then bless yourself, if they deny that Jesus is the Christ, Antichrist. We are not to trust them. If anybody says to you, yeah, yeah, Jesus is, you know, like he's a good, another good teacher. Like he's just another great man in the pantheon of great teachers of the ancient times. No, that is not what Jesus is. Jesus is much more than just a great teacher. And as we'll see as we continue on this, uh, in this study, Jesus is the true and only Christ. There is no other. That was just verse 18. We have several more to go. Verse 19. John goes on to say, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. All right. What is John getting at here? He seems to be repeating himself in these two sentences. But John seems to be indicating here in verse 19 that the departure of these false teachers from within their ranks to, to leave the body was evidence that their profession of faith initially was bogus. He, he indicates that even these false teachers at one time were within this community of professing believers. You know, at some point, they would have too said, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. Yeah, I know God. Yes, I believe in the gospel. They were even actively involved in the ministry of the church. But for the Apostle John, speaking to this church that witnessed this mass exodus from amongst their ranks, he tells them very clearly that until they separated, they were hardly distinguishable from the rest of 
this community of faith. He says, they went out from us. Do you notice the sharp distinction there? They and us. There's no gray area here. They are them on the outside over there. They left us. It points to their own separation. These false teachers separated themselves from this group, taking with them many. But John says, but they were not of us. In spite of what looked like uh, the fact that they belonged to the fellowship and the membership of this Christian community, John goes on to say that their departure makes it clear they did not share the inner life of the Christian community. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They were with us, but they weren't truly with us. So friends, if you're reading a passage like this, this does not mean that if you resign your membership at Hagerstown Church, that you were never one of us. There are plenty of other biblically healthy, sound local churches in Washington County and in the state of Maryland. We hope that you will stay at Hagerstown Church. But this passage is not saying if you decide to go join another church uh, 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 that preaches the same gospel and, and trusts in the same Jesus that you were never one of us. John is pointing at that these false teachers, they never shared the true inner spiritual life with them because they did not persevere to the end. Because he goes on to say in verse 19, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Do you notice this, this us language John uses? It's a corporate language. It's not saying, he, he, he doesn't have this individualistic approach to Christianity. He is speaking to a Christian community. He is speaking to a group of people who have joined themselves together upon their profession of faith and their baptism. They are a body. There is no sense of, well, it's just Jesus and me. Really hope the preacher sounds good this week. You know, really hope his jokes land this week. No, no, no. The Apostle John is speaking to a corporate community of people who have looked to Jesus and who are walking by faith to a greater city that is yet to come. And these false teachers were never a part of them. They were not truly with them. Because if they were, they would have continued. One commentator said, if they had in the truest sense shared our life, the life would have gone towards its fruitful consummation. The idea that John is bringing about in this passage is the idea of abiding. Christians are to persevere to the end. But we do not persevere by our own strength. We do not persevere because we grit our teeth hard enough and we yell loud enough that Jesus is king, Jesus is king, I really hope I get in. We persevere to the end because he has given to us the spirit of God. I'm jumping ahead. But what we see in this brief passage is what the, later theologians have named the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The abiding or the continuance, uh, the endurance of the Christian is the sign of the saved, just as apostasy is the evidence of initial unbelief. Christians are to persevere and endure to the end. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, 
But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The writer of Hebrews is saying, hold fast to the confidence, the confession of our hope that Jesus is our Savior. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, the writer goes on to say, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Friends, for some of us, our holding of the confidence may be tighter than others, but it is the presence of genuine faith that God imparts to us as a gift that implies that we are to persevere to the end. The gift of faith by the Spirit of God is not a gift that the Lord is stingy with. He is not going to give it to you with a string attached to it and then yank it back and say, nope, just kidding, I'm going to take that back. No. Christians, by faith in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, illuminating our minds to the work and the person of Jesus, by the word of God, we persevere to the end. John goes on to say in verse 20 that genuine believers, genuine Christians who've been justified and reconciled to God by the saving work of Jesus, we have received an anointing from Christ. We know the truth. Verse 20, uh, the apostle goes on to say, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. So remember several weeks ago when we opened this letter, the Apostle John was writing to a group of Christians who were being told by false teachers that in order to truly find salvation, they needed to access a special kind of hidden knowledge, a hidden knowledge that only these false teachers could point them to, a knowledge within themselves, not outside of themselves. And this shook the church. Many had departed from the faith. Many who once professed Christ and that in him alone was life, looked somewhere else to say, life is over here. I will find forgiveness of sins over here. But the apostle John goes on to say, listen, you don't need to find hidden knowledge elsewhere. Knowledge has been given to you outside of yourself. Forgiveness of sins is available to you outside of yourself. Reconciliation with God is available and possible only outside of you not within you. You have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Uh, it's interesting. There are so many times where I will find myself finding life hacks, just kind of left and right. Like, it, there's always something new that I need to know in order to make my life a little bit better, right? So I learned recently that you can microwave an ear of corn and the the what is it, the, the husk, the, the, the green stuff and the string just like kind of like melts right off, right? But it's microwaved corn. It doesn't taste good. It, it does not taste good, right? All of these various life hacks apparently don't make my life any better. But I am constantly being told by the world, if I just do this, my life's going to be better. If I just go buy this one thing, then all of the clutter in my life is going to be cleaned up. If I just go do this new diet, then all the fat is just going to melt right off. And goodbye, dad bod, and hello, summertime. <laughs> but the fact remains that I'm never going to get rid of a dad bod. <laughs> no, but the fact really remains 
that as much as I fear missing out and that my life, that I need more knowledge to improve my life and to make my life better and to improve myself as I, you know, look to all of these things that's going to make me look better and feel better and live better and, you know, organize things better, I always go back to the same old things. My shoes never make it into my closet because as much as I want to think that my boots should go up in that shoe organizer, they just stay by the door. As much as I think that if I have 10 more laundry baskets, I'm just going to have all of my laundry piled up on the end of the floor there. All of these life hacks end up always just proving that the knowledge I already had is all I really needed. I didn't need something else to improve myself. John goes on, and I I use this illustration as just kind of a tongue-in-cheek type example, but John goes on to say, you all have knowledge. He says, you already have it. You already have that which they claim you can get if you abandon Jesus. You already have it. Don't let go. Don't abandon Jesus to go for this false group of teachers who claim that you will have knowledge when they do not have it. Because remember in chapter 1, he says, what we proclaim to you, this is the message. This is the truth. Friends, if I were to tell you that I can sell to you the uh, that big red bridge in San Francisco, what is that, Golden Gate Bridge, whatever it's called. If I told you I could sell that to you, would you believe me? No, it's, it, that, that scam is actually one of the most famous con, uh, con acts uh, in American history. Why would you go in the route of falsehood when you already have what is true? If you know I can't sell you that Golden Gate Bridge, why would you give me the money? You wouldn't. Because you have the knowledge that I'm a con man and I don't own that bridge. John says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. So, what is this anointing from the Holy One? Is it special power? Is it uh, a special type of ability for us to be able to discern what is true and what is false? Some sort of mystical force that we can uh, just be able to see what's, what's right and what's wrong? Friends, the anointing from the Holy One, Jesus, the Holy One, this anointing is surely a reference to the Holy Spirit. We have been anointed by God with the Spirit of God, and we all have knowledge. John goes on in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 to say, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his Spirit. Friends, you have not been given an impossible burden to please God for the rest of your life. You have been given God himself. You've been given the spirit of God for all the days of your life. You will never be abandoned if you look to Jesus. You will never be abandoned when the spirit of God dwells within you and will never leave. You have been given the very spirit of God and you all have knowledge. Verse 21, John says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. So these false teachers are claiming that they have a true knowledge, but John insists, listen, you all, 
church. The church as a whole has the same knowledge together because the church has received the very anointing from the Holy One, the Holy Spirit of truth. Friends, one of the best things that you can do for your spiritual life and the spiritual life of a fellow brother or sister or even your spouse, especially your spouse, uh, your children, uh, this week is reflect on these uh, few verses in Titus chapter 3. We have been given the Spirit of God. We have been given knowledge of the Holy One. We have been given a knowledge of the saving work of Jesus. Paul, in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, not only has the Lord promised us a new world that is to come in which there will be no more death and suffering and sin and struggle and toil against sin and toil against temptation, not only has he promised us peace forever in his presence, he has given to us right now eternal life. Eternal life does not begin the day you kick the bucket. It is now. It is when the kindness of God appeared to save us, when he converted us, when he regenerated us, when he made us new, eternal life began then. We are living in eternal life right now, but the good news goes on even further. Because if you kind of just reverse engineer this passage, not only have we been given the great hope of eternal life, not only have we been given the riches of his grace to justify us and declare us legally righteous before a holy, just God, we have been given richly the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us so lavishly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Holy One. So Christian, your Christian life is not simply you just trying to be better in order to get to the end to hope that you're going to make it. That's what I thought when I was a Catholic. But when I came to know the gospel, and when I came to know that it was by his own mercy, his own loving goodness and loving kindness appearing to save me, not because of the works that I've done by being a really good Catholic altar boy and holding that Bible uh, for, the, uh, for the priest during the homily, it was by his own mercy, not by anything that I could do, not by anything that I did, regardless of how straight and narrow I walked as a good little boy, it was by him alone, his mercy, the washing and the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on me richly through Jesus Christ and whom he poured out richly on you, dear church. We have been given this anointing of the Holy Spirit by the Lord. We have this knowledge and John goes on to say that he is not writing to the church to communicate fresh knowledge or a special knowledge or a type of knowledge that supersedes the knowledge that they received before as if these people were ignorant. 
but he writes to them to bring to active and decisive use the knowledge they already have. They're being reminded of who they have. They're being reminded of what they have. They're being reminded of who they are and how they are to walk and what is to come and what has been done. They're not being taught some sort of special new revelation. In church, for many of us, we look to the basics of the Christian faith and we think, yeah, but I want a little bit more. I, I, I want a little bit more sophistication. You know, I, I want more of that, you know, meatier stuff. And we should grow in our understanding of doctrine and theology. We should grow in our understanding of the, the marvelous works of God. But not all of us are called to be the Herman Bovings of the church. But we must be reminded of what we already have. Because we have this knowledge. All of us. Some of us maybe, maybe have more knowledge than others. Not in a qualitative sense, in that my quality of knowledge of God is better than yours, or yours is better than mine. But we all share in the saving knowledge of God by faith in Christ. We have been anointed by Jesus with the same Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that dwells within you is not a different Spirit of God that dwells within a different uh, member, even if their personality is a little bit different than yours. We all have the same Spirit of God dwelling within us, and this same Spirit illuminates in our minds like a giant floodlight the true saving knowledge of Jesus' work. The height of the false teacher's heresy, the lie par excellence, it was the denial that Jesus is the Christ. Because John uses very strong language. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? It's a rhetorical question. He's not expecting an answer to this because he is pointing out who the liar is, the one who denies Jesus is the Christ. He says, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he goes on to say, and again, remember, we, we looked at this before, John kind of revisits the same argument that he's made before. So it, this is not like a linear type of thought in which he posits a thesis statement and then a couple of points to support what he's saying and then concludes it. He kind of has these, ex, uh, these uh, concentric circles of thought that just kind of mix and mingle together. He revisits these same things uh, over and over. So later in 1 John chapter 4, he's going to say, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. It is more than simply denying that Jesus is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. John is speaking to a group of people who are being told, who are uh, uh, effectively being convinced that Jesus is not the Christ. That this false teaching that the, that the quote-unquote spirit of Christ entered this man, Jesus, and then departed him before the cross. John is saying, this is not true. You have already received the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that he suffered in your place. Remember in uh, 1 John chapter 2, when John says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for the whole world. John straightforwardly cuts the argument by pointing to the truth of Jesus. 
He says, the denial of the Son means denial of the Father. You cannot have the Father if you are denying the Son whom the Father sent. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Conversely, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So, as one commentator said, if the heretics thought they could, quote-unquote, have God without believing in Jesus, they were completely mistaken. It is only through the Son that we know that God is Father, and it is only through the Son and His propitiatory death that we can have access to God as Father. Friends, you probably want your children to uh, obey the Scriptures and to live in a holy way. But how are they going to do that if they look to and understand what Jesus has done for our children in the first place? How are we going to walk in holiness and walk in the light if we do not look to him who is in the light, who died a death of propitiation for us? This whole letter is all about Jesus. To deny Jesus, to deny the work that Jesus has accomplished, to deny the fact that Jesus is the Christ is to deny the Father. You are not having him if you do not receive the Son. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, many of you have this verse memorized. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To have the Father is to know Jesus Christ and to abide in him. Friends, who is Jesus? Who is he? What's the big deal? Why do Christians talk so much about Jesus? Why should Christians talk more about Jesus? Who do Christians understand Jesus to be? Who do you understand Jesus to be? I remember several years ago, a friend of mine shared with me this boy that she was interested in in, in dating, and it, that was dating is a whole different subject to, to talk about. But I asked her, hey, so what does he think about Christ? Like, I get it. He's all cute and he dresses nice and whatnot, but what's he think about the Lord? She didn't really have much of an answer. And sure, there's an opportunity to get to know one another and, you know, see if you're the real deal and whatnot. So I, tongue-in-cheek, mostly seriously, encouraged her, hey, why don't you ask him to explain the gospel to you in about five minutes? You know, and she looked at me with big eyes, like just, what are you talking about? Like, I'm going to scare the guy away if, if I ask him to do that. I said, just try. Who is Jesus to him? What does he understand? Does he know Jesus the way you know Jesus and the way I know Jesus? Because if he doesn't know Jesus, you don't want to mess with this guy. You know, Bye. Who is Jesus? I don't know if she ever asked him that question. And maybe I did kind of scare her with that question. But friends, let me ask you, and please don't run, run away scared. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he? What has he done? What has he yet to do for you? There is probably no better question that we can ask than this. Who is Jesus Christ? There have been helpful resources on the subject, many of which you can buy at the book cart over there. There are plenty of preachers and speakers who, who talk about Jesus. 
One particular statement that's been written that I have found so incredibly helpful that, church, I hope you will find incredibly helpful. To answer this question, who is Jesus, is the Ligonier statement on Christology. It's a big word, but basically this is just a brief statement based on the scriptures on who Jesus is. The statement says, we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, in that very first sentence, the statement is answering who Jesus is. He is our Lord. With the Father and with the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us. Crucified, dead, and buried, he rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater thought that you can reflect on, no greater thing that you can focus your thoughts on and your affections and your mind and your heart than the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. And there's coming a day when the whole world is going to proclaim this truth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians chapter two tells us this. But friends, why must one know and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is God the Son incarnate, in order to know God the Father? What is the big deal about Jesus? We looked at it in the statement. John, in John chapter one, verse 18, goes, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has literally exegeted God the Father for his people. He has made God the Father known to us in him. So if you want to know what the big deal about Jesus is, is Jesus makes known God the Father. Uh, uh, in John chapter 14, John records, uh, specifically in verses 8 through 11, he says, and Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Brothers and sisters, what is John getting at? He's getting at the fact that all knowledge of God comes only through the Son, you are not going to get a true knowledge of who God is anywhere else or outside of any other means other than Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Do you want to know God? You can only know him through Jesus Christ. 
these antichrists thought that there was another way. But John gives a strong and stern warning concerning them. But he also gives to us in these closing verses, in verses 24 to 27, a call to abide. A call to abide. He says in verse 24, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Verse 25, And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Friends, God has made a promise, and nowhere in the scriptures do we see God ever breaking a single one. He is not in the business of making promises he does not or cannot keep. God will indeed fulfill every promise that he has made, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So that which you heard from the beginning, the gospel, the apostolic teaching concerning the person and work of Christ, John says, listen, abide in what you heard. Beware of these other things that are going to try to grasp your attention and turn you away from what you heard from the beginning. Don't depart from this message. Let it abide. Adhere to it. Guard it. Protect it. Believe it. Live in it. And it in you. Cherish what you heard from the beginning. Proclaim what you heard from the beginning. Let what you heard from the beginning shape your thoughts and your deeds. Remain in this. Don't leave what you heard from the beginning. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son. What safer place can you and I be in the midst of a world of danger and sin and temptation and destruction and evil and wickedness and darkness and hatred of all things that is God than in the Son? Can you name a safer place? There is no place that you and I will be safer than in him. We will abide in the Son if what we heard from the beginning abides in us. John continues in verse 26. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Again, do you see this concern? He looks at the church with care and love and he says, listen, I am writing this to you because I love you and these false teachers are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. John says Christians have a special line of defense against these false teachers and false teachers that are to come. It is the anointing that we have received, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And when he goes on to say, look, you have no need for anyone to teach you, well, in one sense, he is teaching them. He is writing to them so that they would know and to understand, right? Uh, the later... Uh, Earlier passages in the New Testament speak of teaching in the church. You see that in Acts chapter 4 or in uh, Acts chapter 5, 2 Timothy 2. Uh, uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, God has gifted the church with teachers so that the church can build itself up in love. So John is saying, listen, all that you need to know about Jesus, you don't need to learn from them. You already have the knowledge and you have the anointing of the Spirit of God. They did not need further teaching 
on the person of Jesus. What was John doing? He was reminding them of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus is yet to do, and how they are to walk now because they are in the light as he is in the light. The spirit of truth sent in the name of Christ, as one commentator said, has come to make the meaning of Jesus's incarnation fully known and is ever bringing out something more of the infinite meaning of his person and work. Friends, the spirit of God that who dwells within you brings to your mind and to your heart and to your affection the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is the Christian life. So, how then do we let what we have heard from the beginning abide in us? What does this look like on a practical basis? What does this look like day to day? I don't have anything new to share to you. I don't have 12 more steps that you can take in order to abide in Jesus more comfortably. I'm going to point to you, uh, point you to a passage I pointed to you last week. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, your life is going to appear because your life is Jesus. Christians look to Jesus and in Jesus is our life. Paul goes on in uh, Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Friends, abide in Jesus. Remain in Jesus. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. You can keep it simple. Rehearse the gospel. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done. Rehearse the Christian faith. Uh, resources that have helped me to rehearse the gospel. A, a simple book, Milton Vincent's Gospel Primer, over and over again, being reminded of how the gospel is transforming me day in and day out and is sustaining me to the promise that is yet to come of the promised city sustains me as I walk day by day following Christ with you. Rehearsing the faith and understanding what it is that Christianity is together as a people, we will then together encourage one another and exhort one another to continue to walk in the truth of Christianity. The Baptist Catechism is one resource that has helped me even as recently as yesterday to look to Jesus, to look to the truth revealed in the scriptures. Rehearse the gospel, rehearse the faith, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and in the words of the Apostle John, abide in him. Friends, there is coming a day when the entire earth is going to resound with one singular confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And until that day, we are called to abide in him, to abide in the only anointed one, to abide in the promised Messiah who came in the flesh to take away our sins, the savior of the world. Abide in him, the son of God. I'll close with the final line that I read from the statement earlier. Jesus Christ is Lord. 
We praise his holy name forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good, good news. God, we thank you for the good news that Jesus has come for us, that we need not find uh, a Christ in anyone or anything else other than the one who has truly been revealed to us, Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the Anointed One, the Promised Messiah, our Savior, who is the Lord. Father, would you help us today to look to Jesus and to trust in his finished work, not to look to the works of our hands or to the deceptive claims and teachings of others, but Lord, help us to abide in the message that we have heard from the beginning. Help us to abide in the message that Jesus came for us. Help us to abide in the truth that Jesus is making all things new, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, as we look to Jesus, we ask that you would fill our eyes with the wonders of the person of your son. Help us to delight in the treasure that is Jesus Christ, the son of God, our promised Messiah. We pray all this, our good father, in the name of your son, amen.